Welcome to Counterpoint, the Counter Narrative Projects podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Building Desire and like us on Facebook at The Counter Narrative. I am Johnny Cornegay and I am joined by the founder of the Counter Narrative Project, Charles Stevens. How are you today, Charles? Hey, y'all. This is our first show in a new monthly podcast, and uh, we're going to be talking a bit about this month's theme for the Counter Narrative Project, and that is Beyond the Clinical Narrative. So Charles, let's let's just jump into it. You know, when you when um, thinking about this particular topic, what's been missing from the narratives of black gay men that Beyond the Clinical Narrative seeks to address? Well, part of what we hope to do with the series is to certainly celebrate the amazing scientific breakthroughs that animate our current understanding of, of the path forward with regard to HIV prevention and treatment. But we also wanted to ensure that those conversations, the biomedical approach to um, you know the path forward is also coupled with structural considerations and cultural considerations. So to make sure that even as we cel- celebrate and advocate for advances in biomedical prevention and treatment with regard to HIV um, in terms of, especially as we think about the burden of, in terms of how we think about uh, the impact of HIV, particularly on black gay men, that we also keep in mind the structural barriers that um, also um, impact the the ability, uh, particularly of black gay men, to access treatment, to live full lives, and, and ultimately to ensure that there's a continued conversation around the ways that structural violence also informs the impact of HIV on black gay men. You know, um, <clears throat> when we talked about this uh, particular topic, um, I got really excited by it in general because this is one of those discussions that <clears throat> it's complex and I don't think that we have it often enough when we talk about, um, you know, just how to address uh, the black gay community. Um, when you look back at um, history, and um, we're going to talk about art in a little more detail, but when you look back at um, history a bit and um, think about ways that messages have been communicated, um, what are some of the things that you saw then that you don't necessarily see now um, in terms of messaging and communication and even the way art impacts uh, messaging? Well, let me say that I think artists absolutely need to be front and center into HIV advocacy, that we absolutely need poets and writers and dramatists and all sorts of artists to really bring their creativity, their imagination to the conversations. So much of the black gay men's health movement has been impacted by artists Artists who are also activists, obviously, and here I'm thinking about Essex Hemphill. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about Joseph Beam. I'm thinking about Marlon Riggs. Mm-hmm. This generation of black gay men that were um, artists, certainly, and created some of the most important, sacred cultural production ever for our community. And that's not to say that there aren't artists now. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a number of artists doing great work. I'm not certain if the HIV justice community, the HIV advocacy community has done their due diligence in ensuring that artists are also a part of those conversations. Certainly there are artists that are, Mm -hmm. that that do work, but I think we need to work a little bit harder to bring artists into the conversation. So again, when we talk about, you know, beyond the clinical narrative, we're speaking certainly about the structural issues, Mm -hmm. right? But also we're 
talking about cultural issues as well. Um, so much of the work of the counter narrative project is also about stories and believing in the force of stories to change hearts and minds and change uh, society, change policies and so forth. And I think that's also a role for artists to play as well mm -hmm. to kind of help support that. You know, I think back to um, actually uh, earlier uh, in 2015 uh, did a blog post um, around the time of the Michael Johnson trial, which actually talked about <clears throat> the period between 1985 and 1995 and the important role that music played in knowledge about HIV and education and prevention. And one of the things I noted in that in, in that particular blog is that, you know, after, you know, together again from Janet Jackson in 1997, it kind of like it did a, it did a fade away um, in terms of musicians like talking about, um, you know, HIV in kind of a very direct way. Um, and so I agree with you. I do believe that um, artists should be front and center. Yeah, pop uh, culture, I think, shifted quite a bit. I mean, one could argue that that might have had a lot to do with the advances in HIV treatment that mm -hmm. happened where people started living longer, particularly in the, you know, mid 90s. Uh, and it seems that popular culture. So as there were these significant advances in the science and treatment realms, it seems like pop culture seemed to become less interested mm -hmm. in HIV, like you started seeing fewer narratives in pop culture um, around HIV in that time. And I think that's some important that's important for us to like kind of grapple with I, but it what is interesting i, I kind of wonder if we're in a moment now where we're going to see pop culture again turn attention back to mm -hmm. hiv um and i think there could be um some important opportunities there for us to consider absolutely um <clears throat> if i think personally um it, when i think back in my history and i think about um kind of access to healthcare and, and, and in that realm. Um, I didn't have a conversation about the fact that I was a black gay man until about five years ago, which is striking to me when I think about it. With like your doctor? Um, with like my doctor, you know, having a direct conversation about, about this. And it could be me, but I do often feel like the role of trauma and structure that the role that trauma and structural violence kind of plays in our, you know, in our healthcare and access to healthcare is um, or even how we talk to our doctors it's either really discounted or it's not even considered a lot of times um well i think that there has been some amazing work done in the healthcare realm around cultural competence and wanting to equip healthcare providers and clinicians with tools to be more culturally sensitive but there still needs to be a conversation about racism and homophobia and sexism and these kinds of forms of structural violence, um, economic distress. Um, there are so many ways that folks are, there, there's a violence that I think happens to a lot of us, um, and just speaking as a black gay man, certainly, as we enter into healthcare settings. I know I've certainly had experiences with clinicians that made me not want to go back. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I just, so I feel like when we, to get back to the theme of, of this month, our wanting to grapple with what it means to rethink the clinical narrative or to think beyond that, mm -hmm. it also means absolutely elevating the impact of oppression, mm -hmm. the impact of 
injustice and how so many of us folks of color, queer and trans folks, we uh, enter into these healthcare settings and it's, it's to get from the elevator or the front door to the, to the actual um, waiting room. Mm -hmm. It's, it's like a difficult experience, right? right? Let alone to actually get access. So we really need to have, we need to make sure that conversations on racism and, um, anti-black like these kinds of things have to have to happen in the clinical settings as well Mm -hmm. i agree with that and you know really dealing um i I, it helps to this particular conversation and thinking about beyond the clinical narrative really helps to um help the world to see us as whole people (laughs) yeah you know um and it's so easy when you read um, you know, journals and, and, and studies that come out to just kind of see that, but we are whole people, part of a complex narrative, you know, uh, so talking about racism, talking about, um, kind of the structural violence is critical to be able. I think the dilemma is a lot of service providers, or at least my suspicion is that they, and who's the they, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of white service providers and clinicians I've talked to, I think, and maybe some other, maybe not just white, but like this desire to see you as a person, as a human being. So you'll hear people say things like, well, I don't see race. I don't see sexual identity. I don't see gender. I just see, I see you as a patient or I see, Mm -hmm. and I think, and maybe that's part of the way, the training that folks in social services receive and public health and social work and these kinds of things. But the reality is you can't not, recognize those things like i Mm -hmm. I think to 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 try to erase one's identity that they show up with is also a form of uh violence like you can't erase one's identity it's absolutely important because so much of that identity has been shaped by culture has been shaped by all these other forces all these social and cultural forces historical forces even and so the question becomes not how to pretend that those things don't exist or that they don't matter or how to you know completely like just see someone outside of that Mm -hmm. but really how to be more culturally sensitive to have more humility to have more empathy Mm -hmm. and i think the the more you understand the communities that you're working with the Mm -hmm. more you understand the more you recognize i think it will make you more effective agreed absolutely agreed um, another interesting part of the month, um, we have a unique Google Hangout that we're going to be doing um, called Poetry as Public Health. So we're we're going for it. Yeah. You know, we're going for it. We, I, I had a number of conversations with artists in my life, and I know, Johnny, we've also had these mm-hmm. conversations with each other just about the healing, mm-hmm. the healing nature of art and how many of us have just absolutely we can attribute art and culture to our resilience to yes. our restoration to saving our lives mm-hmm. quite literally so we wanted to bring that into the conversation you know and i know johnny i remember um what was it, a few weeks ago when we were um we hosted a blueprint we mm-hmm. called it a blueprint media roundtable but we wanted to bring storytellers together to talk about advocacy and uh art and advocacy and storytelling and social change and these kinds of forces. And one of the things that came up in that discussion was, and we're just talking about like aid service organizations Mm -hmm. and what does it mean for folks to kind of navigate those environments and what would it look like if, if let's say someone came in and for a treatment plan, poetry was a part of that. Like what if poetry was a part of like your treatment plan to, to kind of also help along. So we wanted to just, again, 
talk about art and healing, particularly around trauma, and particularly mm-hmm. around, and also to talk about joy and the importance of joy as a as an act of resistance and mm-hmm. a strategy for resilience too. So I, I think this uh, Google Hangout is an opportunity for us to really bring artists and writers and creatives front and center into, again, this conversation around HIV and this conversation around resilience. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am very, uh, <clears throat> to your point, remember, you know, when I first digested a book that changed my life and, you know, that I still go back to that book um, throughout my life. And um, so The Power of Words um, I wrote poetry for many years. I probably still could. <laughs> and writing poetry, <clears throat> so there were several things on my uh, journey and come into coming out. Mm-hmm. And poetry was very important for that journey. You know, I was diligently, I was feverishly writing like I was not going to have another day to get those words out, to be able to communicate what I was feeling um, at the time. So, uh, like I said, incredibly excited about um, this discussion because I I do believe, as you mentioned, poet it saves lives. Who are some of the poets that saved your life? Oh, my gosh. Um, so, at the time, jeez. Um, oh, well, you know, so early on uh, in my coming out experience, um, I was introduced to Essex Hemphill um, through ceremonies uh, by a peer of mine. Um, and this was um, high school time, um, later in my high school years. And I remember being really drawn to it. I don't, I didn't, it's interesting because the understanding of what I was actually reading, I don't think it settled in until much later. Um, and so um, Essex Hemphill definitely played an important role. Kevin Powell actually played an important role um, in, my, uh, in my experience in those years as well. Um, so over there in you know, my list of things is, is you know, his books as well. So um, Remember Kevin Powell actually, I'm trying to pull this up. He wrote a piece somewhere a few years ago about kind of grappling with homophobia like so Mm -hmm. writing from the perspective of a straight man and how he interacts with Mm -hmm. queerness in a certain kind of way and he wrote this piece about i think it was like a landlord of his or something who was gay and i think he had this um sort of expressing empathy and Mm -hmm. compassion i thought it was a really um interesting piece for him to um try to grapple with Mm -hmm. uh homophobia and i guess his own sort of like wanting to um be an ally, I guess, sure, yeah. that way. I think that was what it, where it landed. Um, but it's also probably connected to some of his work around mm-hmm. um, anti-patriarchy and so forth. Yeah, and um, so even it, it's interesting, you know, when I think um, now, because there's a piece uh, from a couple of years ago, probably during that same time frame, um, where he talks about, you know, masculinity and kind of uh, unpacking um, kind of American manhood in a, in a very unique way, specific uh, specific to black boys as well. So, which is another thing that we have to talk about. So absolutely. We talk about stigma. Mm-hmm. And we talk about barriers to care and the forces that make it the institutional structural forces, cultural forces, and so forth that end up showing up as barriers to how we are able to um, 
navigate mm-hmm. these healthcare settings, I mean, we absolutely have to talk about masculinity. And mm-hmm. I mean, these things, culture is so important. And I, I worry that the current dominant paradigm in HIV prevention treatment doesn't sufficiently allow for considerations around the impact of culture and these social forces. And again, it's so much of the work that I feel like we must do that mm-hmm. we have to bring culture into these conversations. We have to bring um, considerations around social things. I also want to just sort of follow up. There's this, um, <laughs> I've been clutching onto this book like the, the entire time, <laughs> but there's this poem, one of the, I think one of the greatest conversations or one of the greatest um, pieces of writing that I've come across kind of speaking to HIV in a sort of structural way um, is by Essex Hemphill. And, you know, Essex Hemphill wrote mm-hmm. many great things that I think are so relevant today. But in his poem, Vital, his poem, Vital Signs, mm-hmm. um, he writes um, this, this piece. And I just want to just read it because I think it's so relevant to what we're discussing. And he says, some of the T cells I am without are not here through my own fault. I didn't lose all of them foolishly, and I didn't lose all of them erotically. Some of the missing T cells were lost to racism, a well-known transmittable disease. Some were lost to poverty because there was no money to do something about the plumbing before the pipes burst and the room flooded. Homophobia killed quite a few, but so did my rage and my pointed furies. So did the wars at home and the wars within. So did the drugs I took to remain calm, cool, collected. And then later on in this piece, he goes on to say, Actually, there are T-cells scattered all about me at doorways where I was denied entrance because I was a faggot or as a nigga or too poor or too black. So, I mean, I just really appreciate the piece. and I just wanted to read a few lines from it just because, I mean, certainly counter-narrative, we use, you know, a lot of Essex Temple's mm-hmm. work and other poets, one, to demonstrate the lineage that we stand in, that we see ourselves in. But two, just because it's just so freaking relevant. Absolutely. Like so many of those words that were written over 20 years ago are so right. relevant to our current moment. And we, and their blueprints. Right. Right. In that work. So we're just really um, appreciative of that legacy. And we want to amplify Black Amen's voices, right? Like that's the mission of counter narrative, mm-hmm. but also amplify some of the voice, historical voices as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so in thinking about. Um, beyond the clinical narrative. And um, so in addition, of course, we have our um, our, our, our webinar, um, uh, Black Gay Men and Barriers to Care. So when we talk about um, access to care, <clears throat> obviously we have a number of discussions um, about ensuring that um, Black gay men uh, are, especially Black gay men who are HIV positive, making sure that they're in treatment or, um, and virally suppressed. But um, in general, for black gay men, just making sure that we're going to the doctor and that we have access to be able to do it um, is incredibly important. Um, so looking forward as well to the webinar. And part of it, you know, I don't see us as providing answers, right? right. Like that is not the role of the Counter Narrative Project. I think we try to create a platform to raise more rigorous questions. Mm-hmm. I find there to be, at times, a frustrating, superficial um, kind of discussion in general around black gay men. Yes. And we want to just ask some deeper questions, some harder questions. Like, And so 
hopefully with this webinar and the Google Hangout and some mm -hmm. of the other things we're doing around this, this topic, is to just like, what are the questions that need to be asked? How do we access the language to even begin to imagine the questions, right? Mm -hmm. To really just sort of step back. Um, I think one of the, I don't know how to describe it. I think that for a lot of us, we feel like we always have to have the answer to yes. everything. We always have to have the exact thing to say. We always have to have an immediate response. And that's just not satisfactory to me. Mm -hmm. I think we have to step back and figure out what the questions are. So hopefully what this webinar will do isn't so much to provide questions, to provide answers, answers right. to provide all the right answers, but to just figure out what are some of the things, what are some of the questions we should be thinking about? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, and part of it, you know, and I, not to sound redundant, but much of the HIV prevention and treatment conversation doesn't sound anything like the conversations I have. And I don't know about you, Johnny. Right. I have every day with black men. Right. And what we also hope to do is bring some of those conversations that we have with our friends, mm -hmm. with our loved ones, with people in our life and our communities and, and our workshops. And yes. Things like that. And our discussions, like really bring those conversations more um more to the f forefront of, of, of the, the larger HIV discussion. So hopefully we'll be able to do that. Mm -hmm. um, it is going to be an incredibly busy month for the counter narrative. A very project. busy month. Oh my God. Like we decided, we said 2016, we're going to go big, right? Right. <laughs> and we are here. And, um, so for everyone who is listening, um, you can certainly once I, once again, you know, visit us online, I'm at Twitter at building desire, and you can like us on Facebook at the counter narrative project. Um, Thank you so much, Charles, for being here with us today. Thank you, Johnny, for, for this. And again, it's like I'm really excited that we're launching this this podcast series. Yeah. And I'm Johnny, thank you for kind of um, leading the charge mm -hmm. on this. Uh, certainly your experience uh, having had several successful podcasts pre your counter narrative <laughs> work um, definitely uh, just made it made you the right person to do this. But I think that we're going to do some great stuff with yeah. this podcast series. So I'm happy that we're, we're doing this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It is going to be incredibly fun and I'm grateful and excited and um, want to thank uh, the listeners once again for joining us today. And you can be right back here next month for our next edition of counterpoint. Thank you, Charles.